Hello and welcome to Building Insights, brought to you in association with the A. Proctor Group. Hello and welcome to Building Insights. This episode is brought to you in association with the A. Proctor Group. I'm James Parker, editor of Architects Datafile magazine. And today we're looking at specialist membranes for facade and high-rise building design. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Will Jones, business development manager at the group, and James Johnston, who is head of facades at A. Proctor Group. Hello guys, and thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, James. Hi, James. Good morning. Good morning. So firstly, why do we want more airtight buildings, especially regarding facades on high rises? Yeah, I guess if we if we break down airtightness to, you know, what, what is an airtight building or at least a successful airtight building, I think it's quite a common occurrence that people believe that airtight can sometimes be bad because word airtight itself the whole great you know do you want to be stuck in an airtight room the answer is going to be no um but airtightness is relating to the fabric of a building so the main wall area so we take out the windows and the doors all the sort of openings for now and we're looking at, at making a better fabric to that building a more controlled fabric so if we are um if we have a more uh, airtight controlled fabric we also have more um control over the building itself how how we heat it um, if i take for example if we have a wall which has got many gaps uh, and drafts such as an old tudor house style house you know um the the, the chances are that the heating is going to come on a lot quicker a lot sooner and a lot of heat's going to escape from that building a lot easier um if if we can control that fabric by introducing a, a, an air tightness line uh, then, then we prevent all of those unwanted air movements, such as your drafts uh, and your leaks. And that means that when we look to try and heat that property, we have more control over that, and, uh, and, and vice versa. Uh, in, in, in sort of a, a reverse climate, uh, we can keep the the inside of the building cooler for, for longer as well. So, what we're trying to do is create a building that we have more control over. So that's why air tightness is important. We're certainly not wanting to create an, an airtight box which is going to trap all air in. And, and, and keep all air out. Uh, and then we still want to sort of uh, have um, air changes and, and airflow through that building, but when we want that to happen. James, with respect to commercial and high-rise types of building, it must be very hard to detail and install a membrane with the, uh, the different sort of envelope designs that you get. And how can you ensure that air tightness targets are achieved in in that process yes i mean uh, again ensuring is is a is a very strong word um so what we'd say is obviously with the products that we have that are available to be utilized in regards to air tightness will go a long way in order to making sure that the air tightness levels are achieved but again it will come down to the installation on site it will come down to the detailing from the contractor on site in order to make sure that happens when it comes to the internal line and membranes, so your AVCL or VCL installed on your internal line. Can you just um, spell out those acronyms for anyone that's not too familiar? VCL is um, vapour control layer 
and the AVCL is air and vapor control layer. The AVCL is a more modern terminology, so it's a more modern play on the VCL um, because air and vapor control layer. But obviously the reliance on that AVCL in order to, one, achieve your air tightness line and two, to create your vapor holdout line um, is a bit misguided purely due to the fact that potentially when you're looking at, especially on a commercial project, when you're looking at multiple trades within that um, building, um, the potential damage from follow-on trades such as plumbers and electricians and whether that area gets repaired, whether that vapor control layer or air, va air vapor control layer gets repaired after it's been damaged slash penetrated um, is up to question because that membrane is already behind the plasterboard. And even if it's possible to repair it, is it repaired properly? So from our point of view, what we can do is we can carry out a hydrothermal assessment on that buildup to establish whether um, a vapor control layer or air vapor control layer is actually required within that buildup at all. And obviously, as a manufacturer of breather membranes of vapor control layers, we obviously want to make sure that, yes, from a, from a commercial point of view, we sell a product. However, from optimizing that external envelope buildup, what we want to do is give people the option, give the specifier the option. So what we can do with the hydrothermal assessment alongside a glazer method analysis is establish whether removing that internal AVCL is, is possible, that there is no interstitial surface condensation created. Because we understand the buildup, because we understand the use of the property, because we understand the moisture class, the humidity class within that property, um, whether building control accept that, you know, we've had numerous conversations building control because it's a bit against the system. We show them the hard data and whether they elect to go for that or not is is a question that they, they can only answer. Um, so so if you didn't have an AVCL, you, you'd end up with another membrane, but not an air and vapor yes, control. Yes, it will be an air tightness breather membrane or airtight breather membrane on the outside of the property. So on the from a high-rise perspective, this membrane will go on the sheathing board. So this will be a vapor permeable, airtight, and moisture-tight to W1 product on the outside of the sheathing board. That's not necessarily the um, belt and braces thing that the building control Indeed. might expect. Indeed. Um, it's, again, whether it's belt and braces or whether it's just historically, that's what's always been done. So that's what we're sticking with doing. But what we're trying to do is, you know, we're not trying to remove a membrane in order to sell another membrane because we obviously manufacture both sides of it. Which must give your views credence because you're you're doing yourselves out of an extra sale. Exactly. Theoretically. So what we're trying to do is is optimize that buildup for one, the specifier, for two, the main contractor, because ultimately they're not going to have to purchase that vapor control there. They're not going to have to have all the staff installing that. And they're not going to have to worry about jeopardizing their air tightness line because that membrane's not even there to be damaged and repaired. Obviously, that's a battle to to fight. And, and working with architects, presumably, is fundamental to that. From, from our perspective, we specify to the architect if a main contractor has a design arm within their uh, company, then we obviously speak to them in order to to push these facts towards them as well. If it comes to proof in the pudding, so to speak, then obviously there's a plethora of buildings out there which don't have an internal vapor control layer from a residential or a commercial perspective that have not had any interstitial condensation or surface condensation issues since they've been built.
probably quite important to note there that it's not just the the, the, the specifier that we'd work with as well. Um, it's, it's all too easy to say, here's our product, put it in your, your, your drawing, this is what it does. Um, yeah, we, we also offer uh, the likes of um, install guidance, so maybe that will be detailing. Uh, we, we do uh, things such as Talkbox Talks, so we'll go to sites, we'll meet with um, actual teams that are going to be installing the products, we'll go through uh, what the product is and, and, and why it does what it's supposed to do and, and how you should be installing that. And then also, once uh, the, the build has started to take place, we'll, we'll come back regularly, if wanted to. We're not looking to tread on toes, but we're happy to come back and go through that sort of process with them, make sure they're comfortable, point out any sort of risks or, or, or issues that might they might be having during installation. And I guess what you were talking about, follow-on trades, that still applies when you're talking the air tightness membrane itself that might be the the end specification on such a project. So the toolbox talks really help to encourage people to understand the problems with penetration. Yeah, one of our products, um, which is uh, it's seen quite commonplace now on, on high rise, is, is our rat type membrane. That's a fully adhered membrane. That's going on the outside, as James mentioned, the sheathing board. It's it, it's probably not so um, um, new to people now, but go back a couple of years, that the thought of using a fully adhered membrane on, on, on the external face of the building when you're sort of exposed to the elements is, is probably one that might uh, put a bit of dread in people. But once they realise how easy the product is to use and install and, and how good a finish they can get with the product uh, and also what it offers them in regards to speed of install. It's worth noting at that point as well as just obviously having an interim air tightness test carried out on the property. So technically, once you've got the sheathing board on, you obviously you've got your SFS between your concrete frame, if that's the building type, you've got your sheathing board on, you've got your wrap tied on. Technically, then your air tightness line, as long as your windows and doors are in and sealed, then you've got your air tightness line around the property. So rather than having to wait for the internal insulation between the SFS, the vapor controller to be put on and the two layers of plasterboard and then being able to carry out an air tightness test, you can carry out that air tightness test without having all those internal works carried out. So it's a good show of how, you know, what air tightness you're going to achieve just with the bare minimum of products on the outside. It's well worth noting as well that with obviously passive house becoming more and more prevalent in the industry at this, uh, today, um it's or people aiming for passive house standards um it's the fact that they've integrated or they try and integrate a new um membrane line as well which is on the face of that insulation so where you've got i'll use the word now as uh, will's used it the wrap type on the sheathing board you've then got your 150 200 mil of non-combustible wool on the outside you then put another breather membrane over the face of that to negate um wind washing or thermal bypass through the insulation line. Um, so it's just another way of ensuring loosely terminology, making sure that that air tightness level is achieved at the end of build process. That air tightness membrane wrap tight is, is vapor permeable. Correct. In accordance with BS5250. Okay. So you've still got a breathable yes. structure. Not from an air perspective, so but from a vapor to... perspective. So you've... condensation is obviously minimized. Yeah. I mean, the product yeah. itself is vapor neutral. So it allows the e egress and ingress of vapor through the system. Um, so it, it allows the building to breathe properly. Mm -hmm. Which obviously protects the fabric as well as the occupants. Correct. Whether it's manufactured in a facility or if it's done on site, you will have inherent moisture within that product within each individual line that you've got in there. If your insulation is left out on the building, it's going to get wet. 
you know, when the building's finished, they put in uh, dehumidifiers, so on and so forth, in order to draw that moisture out of the system, draw it out of the screen, draw it out of the concrete. Um, but having that raptide on the outside, it'll allow that building to dry out a lot quicker than if you if you did it as a, as a standard way. So does fire performance play a part in choosing the right membrane for tall buildings? It's an exemption list uh, of products. Um, membranes kind of falls in between exemption and, and regulatory. So uh, there's a section seven, uh, which was brought in um, to part B of the, uh, the, the, the building regulations, which basically says that although membranes have a low calorific value, they still need to achieve a minimum requirement. So it's not... Uh, limited or non-combustible, it, it, it is a class B S three B zero. So if you're putting a membrane into a wall, which is uh, onto a building which is above eleven meters, then you would need to comply with that. So yes, it it, it does play a part. Um, I, th- I think the importance of that section seven um, clause that was brought in uh, was to make sure that you know a lot of membranes they they, they can be quite combustible. Um, but on the other hand, we also have membranes which which are very very perform very very well uh, in, in, a, in a fire. Uh, but we also need to make sure that the membrane does what it's supposed to do. That the functionality of the membrane is what's important. There's no good putting, you know, the best fire performing membrane up on the outside of the building if it's not going to comply to BS five two five O. And by that I mean not allow enough vapor to pass out through the structure uh, in a typical British climate that would prevent interstitial condensation because you're just moving one problem, solving one problem and creating another. So that's that's important as well. And I think now there's enough products on the market to be able to comply with the building regulations requirement for tall buildings. So that shouldn't ever really happen. You know, there are options out there. Raptite being one of them, it's it's BS1, B0, so it is within those parameters. Hence why we see it being used on tall buildings. Lastly, there's been a lot of talk regarding the performance gap over the last few years between design and the final build. What steps do you think can be made to ensure that as built in service or ABIS uh, meets as designed theoretical or ADT as it's known? Specifiers position, um, obviously making sure that they've got so from adt from the as designed theoretical the architect will obviously be designing or the specifier or the main contractor's design studio will be specifying what the build-up is and what materials are going to be utilized within that build-up the understanding of each of those individual products within that build-up and the communication to the purchaser of those the estimator of those materials in order to make sure that they don't value engineer in the worst meaning of value engineering as in the fact that they just buy a cheaper product that's got a similar name what we'd stipulate is that there is the communication there is the the reasoning behind what these products are being specified for and that the adhesion to these products from the purchaser's perspective from the main contractor from the subcontractor's perspective it's understood and that communication needs to go down the line and ultimately to the subcontractor in order to make sure that this is being done properly, as Will mentioned earlier in regards to the toolbox talk. So then it's sort of over to us. And once it's been specified, we followed that specification through to order. Then we make sure that those guys on site are trained to install the product effectively and efficiently because, you know, there's a lot of ownership on air tightness. 
there's a lot of responsibility in making sure that this airtightness results achieved. Because believe you me, remedial measures to en enhance airtightness is an epically expensive thing to do. Um, so making sure that we follow it through, making sure the contractor knows what they're doing, making sure we carry on those with site reports to make sure, you know, we don't go there once. We'll, as Will said, we go there X amount of times um, in order to make sure that as the building progresses, the workmanship is still up there because ultimately this performance gap is about workmanship in order to make sure that that workmanship is consistent throughout the project. And you want to make sure that, that something is, is being carried out right from day one through the project, right to obviously the, the very last day of completion to make sure things, and that's not just with membranes, of course, that's, that's with, with everything to do with that project. Because if something's been incorrectly specified at the early days, or even, dare I use the word, missold, um, you should also have the ability halfway through a project to go, hang on, this isn't right, this needs to be changed. And then there needs to be due process to be able to go back over that specification and make the correct amendments. So it has to, you have to look at the overall picture there. Just because it's specified, that doesn't mean it's right. Perhaps we should uh, draw that to a close, although we could do another hour, I'm sure. Really insightful on uh, some of the realities of high rises and medium rises. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, James. Thank you very much, James.